You probably heard a preacher say something like this, God is good. And in some instances, you may have been taught to say, after he says God is good all the time. And then the preacher encouraged by that will say all the time. And you say, okay, that's very good. Let's try that then. God is good all the time. That's good. All right. Very, very good. Do you realize a lot of people don't buy that? Here's another thing. We've been singing, he is mighty to save. He is mighty to save. We sang it over and over again. So I kind of got the message in the end. He is mighty to save. Sometimes you'll hear preachers say, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And so a lot of people not only say God is good, they also say God is great. Are you aware of the fact a lot of people don't buy that? In fact, there are a lot of people who would put it this way. If God is good, he is not great. Or conversely, they would say, if God is great, he is not good. Now, why would you say that? If God is great, he is not good. What they would say is this. If God is all-powerful and there is so much pain and suffering in the world, he is big enough and powerful enough to fix it. But he doesn't. Why not? If he's so great, if he can do anything, why doesn't he fix it? And the only conclusion they come up with is because he doesn't want to. And if he doesn't want to, he is not good. If God is great, he is not good. Turn that around. You say that God is good. All right, if God is good, then obviously he's so good he would not want people to suffer. He certainly wouldn't want innocent people to suffer. He certainly wouldn't want to see all the terrible things that happen in our world. I mean, he's so good, he he must hate to see that happening. But he doesn't know anything about it. Why not? And they would say, because he can't. Because he can't. So he either can't or he won't. If he won't, he's not good. If he can't, he's not great. Now, I, I have simply mapped out for you very, very briefly, very, very simply, something very unnerving for some of you. This is the very simple argument of the skeptic. We've got to come to terms with, with the fact that more and more people are becoming increasingly skeptical of the Christian faith. And very, very often, even if they haven't articulated as simply and as succinctly as that, Very, very often, that is the underlying thinking. But what's at the root of the problem? (laughs) And the root of the problem is suffering. The root of the problem is, is suffering. People look at our world, and they are well aware of the suffering that is pandemic. 
The suffering perhaps can be very personal. It's in their own lives. They are going through all kinds of things. And perhaps whilst they're not particularly spiritually minded, in desperation they have prayed to God to fix it, and he didn't. Or it may be that they're not quite so focused in on themselves. It may well be that they are looking at a much broader palette and they are and they're saying this is unconscionable. If God is good, he would not let that happen. If he was great, he could stop it happening. But he doesn't. So if God is good, he's not great. If God is great, he's not good. Now I fully recognize that in many, many people's lives, that is a rationalization. The reason they don't believe in God is not because they've arrived at it on an intellectual basis. Many have, but many don't believe in God because they don't want to believe in God, and that's a very convenient argument for them to use. But the argument's out there. And we have got to address this intractable problem of suffering. It's real. And I appreciate the opportunity of talking to you about it today. I want to try and help you to take, if you like, a bird's eye view of the problem of suffering and slowly focus in until you see yourself in the picture and where you fit. Now, the only way I know to do that is to turn to God's Word. Always remember that when we come to these huge problems that confront humanity, and if we're thinking people at all, we cannot avoid them, we cannot evade them, we need to think about them, we need to try to get a handle on them, then there are two ways of doing it. One is to engage in human speculation. Human speculation. Come up with our best guess. Come up with what we think about it. The other approach is to believe that there is such a thing as divine revelation. And I think you would probably agree with me that if those are the two options, there's a lot to be said for divine revelation as opposed to human speculation. And that's where the scriptures come in. We believe that the scriptures claim to have divine revelation. God speaking to us in language we understand. It's not always easy language, but it is understandable because the Holy Spirit who inspired it will come to our aid to help us understand it. So with that in mind, I'm going to read to you from Romans chapter 8. We're going to read from verse 17. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. What, what the apostle is talking about here to the Roman believers is this. If you now see yourself as a child of God because you have been adopted into God's family, then in the same way that an adopted child comes into a family, that adopted child becomes an heir of what is precious in the family. If this adopted child comes into the family and finds that there is already a genetically related child in that family, now this adopted child is not only a member of the family, but in some way has a relationship with the genetically related child in that family. 
So Jesus, by right, is the Son of God. We are not sons of God the way Jesus is. We never can be. But we can become heirs of God, adopted into his family, and in a sense, co-heirs with Jesus. Now, this is what we, are, we go on to, to read. If we are children, then we're heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So what is Jesus heir to? And the answer is, he will share the Father's eternal glory. Now, if we are co-heirs with Jesus because of our relationship with Jesus and we're adopted into God's family, what are we heir to? Well, we're co-heir of what Jesus is heir to. What's he heir to? Eternal glory. What are we heirs to? Eternal glory. How did Jesus arrive in the eternal glory? And the answer is through incarnation, living in our world, suffering our pain, enduring our testings, tested in all points like as we are, yet without sin, the excruciating suffering of the cross. He goes down into death and the grave. He rises again and ascends to the Father and enters his glory. What does the Apostle Paul say? The path to glory for Jesus was through suffering. If you are a co-heir with Jesus, you will be an heir to his eternal glory. The path to glory is what? Suffering. The path to glory is suffering. So what is he saying? If you have been adopted into God's family, you're a member of God's family, you are a co-heir with Jesus. Jesus is the heir to eternal glory. You're a co-heir with Jesus to eternal glory. The path to glory was suffering. Therefore, as a Christian, the path to glory is suffering. It's normative. That's the way it works. Now, that is a total shock to many people. They've got the idea that you become a Christian, everything's suddenly hunky-dory. You know, it's just great. Hey, wow, this is, this is great. You see? Well, that, that's fine if that's how it is for you, but don't count on it. I'm going to show you why you don't count on it. The Apostle Paul then goes on to say in verse 18, having pointed out the path to glory is suffering, verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Okay, now immediately he's got it in perspective. He is saying, look, don't get any funny ideas about being a Christian, about being a child of God, about being a co-heir with Jesus. It doesn't mean that you are exempt from suffering. It doesn't mean that you'll be immune to suffering. In actual fact, the path to glory is the path of suffering. And you need to understand this, that the glory that you are heir to is so superlative that what you are going through now doesn't even compare. Don't bother comparing it. Just get the whole thing in perspective. Now, our problem very often is we get the whole thing totally out of perspective. The skeptics 
who look at the problem of suffering in the world today and have decided that God is either not good or not great or probably doesn't exist at all, they are not thinking of glory. They have absolutely nothing to compare the suffering to. And therefore, there's no way that they can come up with the answer. But there are many believers who are so focused on their personal suffering, their personal pain, that they've lost sight of the big picture. They've lost sight of the big picture, the panoramic view. Now, Paul goes into a description of this panoramic view. Verse 19. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. Now he's going into the details about the glory that Jesus is heir to, that if you're a co-heir with Jesus, you're heir to, that one day you will receive after you've walked the path of suffering. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. Why? Verse 20. The creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. All right? The creation now is the focus of what Paul is talking about. We are part of the created order, okay? We are part of the created order. The Apostle Paul says that the created order has been subjected to frustration. He goes on to say that it was subjected intentionally by someone. But he doesn't say who it is. So he expects us to do a little thinking there. By whom was the created order subjected to frustration? Well, let's back up a little bit. Get hold of this first key word of the panoramic view. The panoramic Christian worldview, if you like. And the first key word is creation. That's where we start. The Bible, without apology, starts out, in the beginning God created. <laughs> now that, the in the beginning God created. Five words. That raises some profound philosophical questions. Have you noticed? In the beginning, what was the beginning? How did it begin? You know, the beginning of what? Well, we don't have time to go there. In the beginning, God. Oh, that's a big one. In the beginning, God. Some people... <laughs> Some people have a problem with the idea of God. So many, many Christians are intimidated by very intelligent atheists. Intelligent atheists will come to you and say, there is no God. And what does the intimidated Christian do? They head for the bushes. No, you don't. You say, prove it. Prove it. <laughs> and they can't. They could get into various arguments. There's no way on the basis of empirical evidence they can prove that God does not exist. By the same token, they'll turn on you and say, well, you believe God exists, then prove it. You say, I can't. But you said to me, you believe that God is. I say, that's right. I believe that God is. And then I turn to the atheist and say, you know what you are? No. I said, you are a believer that God doesn't exist. I'm a believer you're a believer. <laughs> Let's shake on it. <laughs> Isn't that nice? We've found a point of agreement. We're both believers. You see? 
I believe that God is, you believe that God isn't. I can't prove it empirically, neither can you. So quit talking the way you're talking. All right, now we're going from there. I believe that God created the universe. The other guy says, I don't believe that God is, therefore logically, he does not believe that God created the universe. Now now there's an issue then. Well, if God didn't create the universe, can we agree that it is here? (laughs) So, say, may I just poke you a minute, make sure you're here. Yeah, now poke me, yeah. Am I here? Yes. Are you here? Yes. Okay. We got here. Yes. Anything else that got here as well? Yes. Where did he come from? I don't know. Well, you believe that God isn't. Yeah. So it didn't come from him. Right. So it happened. Right. You are part of what happened. Yes. So you just happened. (laughs) Yes. Why? Now, where does he go? Where does he go? Well, let's let's go on the other side of the argument. I believe that God is. I believe that God created. I believe that I'm made by God, for God, to live through God, accountable to God. You're perfectly entitled to your views, sir. It is a faith system that you live by. This is my Christian worldview. Creation. Now... I look at this problem, this huge problem, and say there is a huge problem in this created order. And the huge problem in this created order, anybody I know will agree with me on this. The huge problem in this created order is this. Things are not the way they ought to be. Does anybody have a a problem with that? Things are not the way they ought to be. I talk to people all over the world. They all want to argue. They all want to get into different ideas. I say, look, find a point of agreement. And I have found a point of universal agreement. Things are not the way they ought to be. Now, they will all have their own ways of describing that. But what I try to point out to people is this. If you believe that things are not the way they ought to be, you are assuming something. What are you assuming? You're assuming there is a way things ought to be. There is a way things ought to be. And that's where we come back to creation. I believe that God is. I believe that God created. I believe that what God created, he pronounced as good. Guess what? Things were the way they ought to be. But we're all agreed now things are not the way they ought to be. So there's a gap between that which God created and that which is. And how did we get from the way it was created to the way it is? And the answer is here. It was subjected to frustration. It was subjected to frustration. How did that happen? Well, the Bible is an excellent book on the subject, particularly helpful if you read it. (laughs) And here we go. Here we go. Written in very picturesque language, not written in scientific language, not written in philosophical language. If it had been written in scientific language hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, it wouldn't have been very scientific, would it? 
And people today would look at it and say, that's a lot of nonsense. So they never attempted to write it in scientific or philosophical language. It was used, pictorial language was used. So you can get the idea, you get the principle of the thing. And here's the idea, that part of the created order is humanity. Humanity is an integral part of the created order. But we are totally different from the rest of the created order. And God says that he made humanity in his image. Didn't say that about anything else. Not only did he create humanity in his image, he made humanity created in his image capable of a relationship with him like nothing else in the created order could enjoy. And he placed humanity in the position of being his agents, of supervising the created order. That's what it says. And they were to supervise it because they had a relationship with God. And the relationship with God was a very simple one. God says, I love you, love me in return. You cannot make somebody love you. You just can't do it. Some guys have tried. Beautiful girl, come across their path. Immediately they're smitten. They just want that girl to love them. They've tried everything. They've tried every trick in the books. And in the end, out of sheer frustration, they get them by the throat. They back them up against the wall and they yell at them, just love me. Don't do it, guys. It won't work. Won't work. You just can't make somebody love you. They have to choose to. God says, I love you. I've chosen to. <laughs> love me back. He gave us the ability to choose. It's pointless giving people the ability to choose if they don't have a choice. That's like a communist election. <laughs> You're perfectly free to choose any of the one candidates. <laughs> it's democracy. No, you've got to have a choice. And God gave humanity a wonderful choice. <laughs> it was, this is what he said. You see that whole universe? It's full of everything you can imagine. Go for it. Oh, by the way, just so you can have a choice... I'll stick one tree in the middle of it. Just one tree. I'll point it out to you. Don't go near it. Humanity having the whole universe to go at and just one tree that was forbidden, being very, very smart, then decided there must be something very special about that tree. (laughs) And there's something very special about forbidden fruit. And this is what God said. God said, if you disobey me, if you rebel against me, if you choose not to love me, you'll sever the relationship, the unique relationship between God and man. And the word that he used to describe that was death. The day you do it, you'll die. And God is the one who subjected the creation to death and disease, and decay. And the word that we use to describe all this death 
and disease and decay and disintegration and dysfunction. We all know all about that. The word that we use to describe it is the fall from what ought to be to the way it is. So the second key word of the Christian worldview is creation, fall. And what's this got to do with suffering? What this has got to do with suffering is this. When death entered into the world and sin entered into the world, the process of death, which is a slow process, goes through decay, goes through disintegration, goes through deterioration, starts with dysfunction, began to manifest itself in every aspect of my humanity, and pardon me for saying this, your humanity, so that my mind does not always think straight, and my emotions do not always desire correctly, and my will does not always choose right. So my behavior is frequently not what it ought to be. And I look at the world and say, things aren't the way they ought to be, but I should be looking in the mirror and saying, and I am not what I ought to be, and my relationships aren't, and your relationships aren't. And as a result, we have created a dysfunctional society, and we are manufacturing a dysfunctional culture. And not only that... This dysfunction, this frustration, this weakness on every hand, this subjection to decay, it's all in Romans chapter 8. All these things impact every dimension of the created order. In fact, it goes on to say this. It goes on to say this. The whole creation groans. The whole creation goes. Have you ever been so frustrated? Have you ever been so racked with disappointment? Have you ever gone into your room and sobbed your heart out? Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you couldn't even think of words to describe your anguish and you just let rip a great... Join the club. The suffering is unbelievable. But is the suffering there because God is not good? I don't think so. Is it there because God isn't great? I don't think so. Well, why is it there? And the answer is, man rebelled against God. God had told him in advance what the consequences would be, warned him not to do it, told him not to do it. He did it anyway. And we're living as fallen people in a fallen world. And we're suffering as a result. But read on a little bit in Romans chapter 8, verse 20. The creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. You got that? Read on. What does he say? It was subjected in hope. In hope of what? 
that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Ah, God subjected it into its fallenness because of man's decision, but even at the time he subjected it into the consequences of their rebellion, he gave them hope. He gave them hope. And what was the hope? The hope that one day the whole created order would enjoy the glorious liberty of the children of God. And what is this glorious liberty of the children of God? The key word for that, and it's the third key word, is redemption. Redemption. Redemption is God's initiative to roll back the consequences of the fall. That is a principle to bear in mind. It is a process that he has started. It is a process that he is continuing. It is a process that will finally be completed, not this side of time, not in our understanding of space. It will be completed in eternity. And here is the completion of the work of redemption. Here's the completion of it. This is what a suffering world that has a Christian worldview looks forward to in hope. Let me tell you what it is. God is totally committed to bringing this world as we know it to an end. And creating new heavens and new earth. Characterized by righteousness where everything will be as it ought to be. This new heaven and new earth, characterized by everything is the way it ought to be, will be populated by some people who are what? Heirs of God. Heirs of Christ, joint heirs with Christ. What are they heir to? Glory. What is this glory? New heaven and new earth in which God is God and everybody is glad there. And these people who have gone through all kinds of frustration and pain and disease and decay and disintegration and disillusionment and even death will be liberated from those bodies and they'll be given new bodies. Like the resurrection body of Jesus. And the new heavens and the new earth will be populated by people renewed and refreshed into a relationship with God. And he gives them in their resurrection bodies like unto Christ's resurrection body. And the word for that, new heaven, new earth, new people, is called glory. And there is your Christian worldview. Creation, fall, redemption, glory. All right, now let's focus in. <laughs> All right, 
There's the, there's the panoramic view. Now we focus in, and guess what? Ah, look who's there in the center of the picture. It's you. It's you. And where are you in this picture? Little you, created by God, created for God, created to live through God, accountable to God. But unfortunately, things have not been the way they ought to be. And God loves you anyway. And God wants to forgive you. But he has made a rule. And the rule obtained when our forebears sinned, and it still obtains today. And what is the rule? The wages of sin is death. And what goes along with death? Disease and decay and disintegration and disillusionment. The wages of sin is all these things. And here I am. I'm created by God, for God, to live through God, accountable to God, but I haven't done it. And so I am subject to death and disease and decay. I hurt. I'm subjected to frustration. I can't fix everything. Keep wanting everything to change. I want everything to be right. And I can't do it. What has to happen? I've got to realize I am experiencing the wages of sin, which is death. I've died to God. But if the wages of sin is death, is it possible that somebody could be a substitute for my death? The answer is yes. And the God loves you so much, he sent his son as the only perfect substitute for the sins of the whole world to suffer our death. Did he suffer our death? Oh, he suffered for 33 years on this earth. He suffered everything that any human being ever suffered to a degree that we are utterly ignorant of. And in the end, he laid down his life on the cross and God says the wages of sin for the whole world which is death have been paid and those who will repent of their sin and yield their lives to a life of loving, trusting obedience to me will be reconciled to God. And I will take them and the same Christ who died for them and rose again will send his spirit to live in them. And I will start a process of regeneration and a principle of renewal. And they will become refreshed. And slowly but surely, they'll discover what it means to be a child of God and joint heir with Jesus heading for glory. And there will be people who suffer and there will be people who are frustrated, but always their suffering and their frustration will be tinged with hope. Why? Because they live in the hope of ultimate, final, eternal, irrevocable glory. That's where they're heading. 
And God even goes further. This is what he says. I will not exempt you from suffering because this is a fallen world. I can't make you immune to suffering because you are part of this fallen world. But you're in the process of redemption, bound for glory. So this is what I'll do. I will use your suffering. And this is how I will use it. I'm just going to read it for you so I don't misquote it. This is how I will use it, God says. You need to understand that your sufferings produce perseverance. And your perseverance produces character. And your character reaffirms your hope. And your hope will not disappoint you because all the time the love of God will be shed abroad in your hearts. And guess what? God will not exempt you from suffering because you're a fallen person in a fallen world, but you will live in it with hope and you will also live in it with joy. You know why? Because you know that your suffering will produce perseverance and perseverance will produce character and character will produce hope and hope will be stimulated within you all the time as God through his spirit whispers, I love you, I love you, I love you. And there's one other thing. Scripture says this. Our light and momentary troubles. (laughs) Our light and momentary troubles. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and 5. Read it sometimes. The Apostle Paul catalogs his light and momentary troubles. I want to tell you something. I wouldn't call them light and I wouldn't call them momentary. That's what he did. Because he had the right perspective. This is what he said. Our light and momentary troubles are working out for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. So there are two things. Two things. You will not be immune, you'll not be exempt from suffering. But you will experience it with hope. You'll go through it with joy. Because you know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance produces character and character produces hope. And hope reminds you all the time through the Holy Spirit that you are loved of God. And not only that, you know that there is a definite connection between the weight of glory you will enjoy for all eternity and what you're going through down here in time. So, if God is good, he is not great. If God is great, he is not good. There's a lot of baloney. Because I want to tell you how great he is. He is so great, he created the universe. He is so great that when the agents of his control of this universe reneged and sold it out, he didn't wipe us off the map. He is so great that he devised a way of drawing men and women back to himself. He's so great that one day, He, having held this world in control, will terminate it and create a new heavens and a new earth. That's how great he is. 
Yeah, but he isn't good. I'll tell you how good he is. He is so good. He is so good that he actually has devised a way where in Christ he himself could bear our pain. He is the suffering God. And I'll tell you how good he is. He is so good that he is willing to forgive and to blot out from his eternal memory every recollection of our rebellion and rejection of him. And I'll tell you how good he is. He has prepared eternal glory that you and I can share if we will choose to become children of God and joint heirs with Christ. So I am going to insist God is good all the time. And I'm also going to insist great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And I hope you can join me in these two affirmations. God bless you.